Good morning, church. How many of you feel blessed to be in service this morning? Man, I feel very blessed to be in service. Worship, man, this was one of those services I felt more comfortable on my knees than on my feet. Praise God. I'm blessed to be here this morning. Now, we have a lot to go through, so without further ado, we're going to jump into it, but let's start with prayer. Father, I thank you that you are always with us. And now, as we open your word, please shine the light on our hearts. Teach us and help us to walk right with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are into the fourth sermon as we go through the book of Amos. Up to this point, we know the immediate context of the book of Amos. It was written during the time when Israel was split into two kingdoms, the north and the south. Amos was sent from the south to the north as a prophet of God, and he bore a message speaking against their unrighteousness and injustice. The passage of Amos that we're looking at this morning is the only passage in Amos that is quoted in the New Testament. When an Old Testament passage is quoted in the New Testament, it's worth looking at it and learning because the people who are quoting it are Jews themselves. They know the historical context. They know the culture, the background better than us. We can glean some wonderful things if we look at how they use it in the New Testament. So what I'm going to do to start is I'm going to read you our passage from Amos chapter 5, and then I'm going to read us the passage from the book of Acts. Amos chapter 5, verse 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord, for what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or as though he went into the house, leaned his hand on the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? Is it not very dark with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feast days, and I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, nor will I regard your fattened peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your string instruments, but let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. Did you offer me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness, 40 years old house of Israel? You also carried Sikuf your king and Chu and your idols, the star of your gods which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will send you into captivity beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. Verse 25 to 27 is quoted in the New Testament by Stephen. When Stephen quotes it in the New Testament, first he talks about the people in the time of Moses. Then he quotes Amos for the people in the time of the prophets. Then he turns to the people in the New Testament and he says to them, you are just like your ancestors. In other words, the same issues that Stephen faced in the New Testament was the same issues that the people of Amos were facing, same issues that the people of Moses were facing. So I want to read you this passage. I'm going to show you something in the Bible that has existed among God's people from the very beginning of time until now. Beginning in Acts chapter 6, now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Sicilia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. And as part of his response to them, he said these words, 
This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He, Moses, led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. This agrees with what was written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have taken up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your god, Raphan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Just pause for a moment to let me explain the names of the gods. In the New Testament, it says Molech and Raphan. In the Old Testament, it was Sikuf and Chun. Because the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and it was quoting the Babylonian god names. But in the New Testament, it was written in Greek. So it was simply a language translation of the same god names. And Stephen went on to say, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. They covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Many times when we think of the Old Testament, we have this picture of wars and it's a war between nations. There are evil nations, Amalekites, Ammonites, Philistines, coming against the righteous nation of Israel. Evil nations against a righteous nation. But I want to show you from the Bible that from the beginning of time, there has also existed a different level of persecution, which is not nations against God's people, but within God's people, there has always been evil brothers who would persecute righteous brothers. Look all the way in the beginning, the first two brothers in the Bible were Cain and Abel, and Cain murdered Abel. The Bible says, not as Cain who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother, and why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. When God's people existed as 12 tribes of Israel, during that time, Moses was described as the one who brought words of righteousness to the people. He was the representation of righteousness, but evil men like Korah kept rebelling against him. During the time where God's people existed not as 12 tribes, but as one kingdom, one nation under one king, first King Saul, then King David, and then King Solomon. During that era, King Saul was evil. The Spirit of the Lord departed from him and he was possessed by an evil spirit. But David was described in the Bible as righteous and upright in heart. And you see the evil one persecuting the righteous one. During the time when God's people existed in divided kingdom, the North Kingdom and the South Kingdom, you see repeatedly, many times, like the book of Amos, the prophets rebuking the people for being unrighteous and they persecuted the righteous prophets. How did they persecute them? The book of Amos says that they silenced the prophets. How did they silence them? They didn't silence them by bribing them. You can't bribe a righteous man. They silenced them by killing them. That's why Stephen said, was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? You even killed those who proclaimed the coming of the righteous one. History records that Amos, who wrote the book of Amos, was later on murdered by the son of a priest. 
Now, you come to the time of the Gospels. The Pharisees are described as men who had evil intent in their heart, and they murdered the righteous one, Jesus. And you go beyond the Gospels, and you see in the book of Acts, again and again, unrighteous men, evil men, persecute righteous men of God. The scary thing is that the Bible says here in Amos chapter 5, verse 18, they desired, they were looking forward to the day of the Lord. These are evil people, but they are looking forward to the day of the Lord. How can it be? This morning, I want to show us three things or three mistakes that evil people do without even realizing that they have done it. The first thing I want to show us is that they misuse or misunderstand the blood covenant. How is it that these men are killing people, oppressing the poor, and still looking forward to the day of God? The day of the Lord is the day where God will supernaturally intervene for His people to destroy the wicked and reward the righteous. And they thought they were going to be rewarded. Why? It's because in verse 22, they, it says, you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings. It was because they thought they were under a covenant with God and so they're going to be okay. Jews in those days, their parents, their parents' parents would tell them, we are people under a blood covenant with God. From young, they've been told that. From young, they've been taught. The blood covenant is the greatest of all covenants. God will honor that blood covenant. God will never forsake us. God will never leave us. God will never turn away from us. We will always be God's people because of the blood covenant. And then, no matter how much wrong they did, they kept thinking, because I have the blood covenant, I'm going to be okay. But it wasn't so. Let's take this closer to home. How many of you here believe that you and me, we are also under a blood covenant with God? Raise your hand. You better believe so, okay? The Bible says so. We are under a blood covenant. It's not a blood covenant made with the blood of goats and calves. It's a blood covenant made with the blood of the Son of God, Jesus himself. So we are righteous because of the blood of Jesus. Now, does this mean that we can do whatever we want and get away with it? Hold on. If you say no, does this mean that there is a part of our righteousness that depends on our works? <gasps> then you can't talk like that in church. You see how easily we trip up? The Bible doesn't actually teach of one type of righteousness. The Bible actually teaches of two types of righteousness. The old theological terms for these two types of righteousness was imputed righteousness and imparted righteousness. So when you read the New Testament, especially the book of Romans, and you see the word sins, S-I-N-S, with an S, okay? This is talking about imputed righteousness. An example is in Romans 4, verse 7 to 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Each and every one of my sins, my wrongdoings in life, has a punishment or a penalty attached to it. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid the price for the penalty of my sins. And so by coming to Jesus in faith, acknowledging that he took my sins away, I'm escaping the penalty of sin. But even though today I may accept Christ and escape the penalty of sin, tomorrow the power of sin is still there. I still have evil thoughts. I'm still prone to getting angry, having lustful thoughts, desiring the things of this world. The power of sin is still in me. 
And so the cross came to deal with sin. So when we see the word S-I-N, without the S, sin in the book of Romans, is imparted righteousness. This is sanctification. God breaking the power of sin in me. Romans 6 verse 6, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Where were we crucified with Christ? On the cross. So you see, the cross has a twofold application. It's not just forgiving our sins, it's also the power to break the power of sin over our lives. If I was to give you a mathematic equation, it would be like this. Salvation equals justification plus sanctification, equals imputed righteousness and imparted righteousness. If a man says, I wanna live right, I'm just gonna do righteous deeds. So he understands the value of righteous living, but he denies imputed righteousness. He says, I don't need Jesus to take away my sins, I'm just gonna live a good life. To God, that man's life is not credited righteousness. But vice versa, if a man says, I'm under the blood covenant and so I've escaped the penalty of sins, but I refuse, I refuse to change my life and I want to continue sinning, to God, that life also is not credited righteousness. It says that in the Bible, Hebrews chapter 10, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left but only a fearful expectation of judgment of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. There is nothing wrong with the blood covenant. There is nothing wrong with God holding up his end of the blood covenant. God honored the covenant so much that he sent his only son to die for the sake of that covenant. Nothing wrong with God, but there is something wrong with men when we don't realize we can break our end of the covenant with unrighteousness. So the first is the people had a false sense of security under the blood covenant. The second mistake they made is that they didn't care that God wasn't showing up. They didn't care, they weren't troubled, they weren't distressed that God has stopped answering their prayers. Verse 25 and 26, did you offer me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness 40 years old house of Israel? The answer to that is yes, they did. They offered him sacrifice and God said, you also carried Sikuf your king and in your idols, the star of your gods which you made for yourselves. So they were under the blood covenant, but they turned to idols. Why do people turn to idols? People don't turn to idols for fun. Oh, it's a hot summer's day, let's just make some idols for fun. No, they don't do that. People turn to idols to get some benefits from false gods in this life. If God is your all in all, if God is answering every prayer you have made, why would you need to turn to idols? Remember the time of King Ahab and Elijah? God shut the heavens. There was no rain on the land because King Ahab was evil. So you've got an evil king asking God for rain and God's not answering his prayers. Now that's his cue. That's the cue for the evil king to repent, to make himself right with God and let God answer his prayers again. But instead, King Ahab turned to idols for solutions. That's why there was a showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. They didn't make Baal for fun. They came to Baal for rain and prosperity. Remember the time of King Saul, who was evil? When King Saul started to persecute David, the, God shut 
the heavens on him. When he went to war and he prayed to God, God refused to answer King Saul. That was his cue. That was his cue that something was wrong with his relationship with God. He should have repented and turned to God, but instead he turned to witchcraft and the occult for help. Blood covenant or no blood covenant, it's clear in the Old Testament. God said, though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, nor will I regard your fattened peace offerings. Blood covenant or not, you still have to be righteous for God to hear your prayers and accept your offerings. Psalm 66 verse 18, if I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. That's the standard in the Old Testament and it still carries over into the New Testament. James 5 verse 16, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. That means that the prayer of an unrighteous man is also powerless and ineffective. Now, this righteousness is not talking about being saved. It's talking about the way we live. 1 Peter 3 verse 7, Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the precious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. You see, it doesn't say husbands get saved so that nothing will hinder your prayers. It says husbands respect your wives so that nothing will hinder your prayers. The way we live affects the effectiveness of our prayers. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Again and again, righteousness, the way we live, affects our prayer life. Now, just because we got one unanswered prayer doesn't mean we are unrighteous, <laughs> okay? Now, I'm a doctor. I know a little bit about diagnosing problems. If a man comes and he says, you know, I had a headache two months ago. It was once off. I went to sleep. I woke up the next day. It wasn't there. Never had it again. We wouldn't worry. We said, yeah, no big deal. But if a man comes and every day he says, oh, I got headache. Every day I got headache, okay? We would tell him, something is wrong, man. You need to go and get a diagnosis. You need to find out what's really wrong with you and get it treated. Then you will be well. In the same way, if we pray many prayers and occasionally one or two prayers don't seemingly to be answered, maybe it's God's divine timing. There are divine reasons and we don't know everything. But if every time a Christian prays and his prayers are never answered, something is wrong with his spiritual life. In that case, he shouldn't make excuses. He should go to God and say, God, where am I missing it? Teach me, Lord. And Lord will teach us and guide us. Christians are not trying to be unrighteous. Christians are trying to walk right with God. You and I, we are trying to walk right with God. But do you agree that if we pray to God and we say to God, Lord, show me Search every nook and cranny of my heart, every inclination, every hurt. Is there any unforgiveness? Is there any bitterness? Is there any time I have slandered or spoken bad about others? If we ask God to search our hearts true and true, do you think God could show us a thing or two that we could still be right with Him? I bet He could. And those are the things that are still hindering our prayer life. The Bible says the little foxes, little, little foxes destroy the vines. It's not the big sins. Sometimes it's just the little sins that hinder our prayer. But psychologists cannot show you that you were hurt many years ago and you still have a slight bitterness towards the person. Only the Spirit of God can search a man so thoroughly and show him and convict him that this issue needs to be let go. Only God can do it. 
Unanswered prayers is not something to be dismissed. It's not normal. It's something we should take to God and let God address it with us. The third thing that these people made the mistake of doing is that they attacked their brothers thinking they were doing God's work. Now, Stephen was being persecuted. If we could invite Stephen to stand here with us and have a Q&A with him, ask him a few questions, we might ask him, Stephen, you said the people in the New Testament were just like their ancestors. But when you mention their ancestors, you talk about the people in the time of Moses making a golden calf. That's idolatry. You talk about the people in the time of Amos, the prophets, worshipping star gods. That's idolatry. But the people who were persecuting you, they weren't idolaters. They were false teachers under false teachings. Why did you say they are just like their ancestors? If we ask Stephen such a question, Stephen might reply, they always resist the Holy Spirit. And we would think for a bit and we would ask him again, Stephen, the Holy Spirit was given to the church in the New Testament. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came so I can understand how the people in your time were resisting the Holy Spirit. But the people in the time of Moses and the time of Amos, they didn't know about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So how did they resist the Holy Spirit? And if we ask him such a question, I think Stephen might answer, was there ever a prophet they did not persecute? They even killed those who proclaimed the coming of the righteous one. There it is. That's the thread that has tread through the entire history of God's people. It's not just idolatry. That's just the manifestation of it. The thread that goes through, they resisted God by persecuting righteous men that God has sent them. Now, I want to impress upon you from the Bible, not my personal opinion, but from the Bible, it's wrong for a brother to attack a brother. I could do this two ways. Option number one, I could show you examples after examples of men in the Bible who did so, and it ended very badly for them. Option number two, I can give you the good example of Jesus, how Jesus didn't do it, and it ended very well for the whole world. Frankly speaking, at this point in the sermon, I'm tired of talking about evil men. Three and a half sermons into the book of Amos, you're probably a bit tired of hearing about evil men as well. So why don't we take a break and let's spend the rest of this morning talking about Jesus. Between the end of the Old Testament, Malachi, until the start of the New Testament, the Gospels, there was 400 years of silence. All the righteous voices in the lands have been silenced. They killed every righteous voice that was sent to them. And for 400 years, God did not show up. He didn't answer any prayers. There were no visions. There was no righteous teaching. For 400 years, the false teachers had their way. No one hindered them. They just did false teaching after false teaching. One layer of false teaching over another. Hundreds of years, generations of false teachings. By the time you come to the start of the New Testament, it was so dark that all, no one had a very clear idea of right teaching. It was all mixed in with false teachings, if not purely false teachings. It was such a terrible time that the Bible describes that era as darkness. And into that darkness, Jesus came. He was the light. He was the light shining in the darkness, and the darkness did not understand him. One of the saddest verses in the Bible is John 3, verse 19. 
where Jesus said, this is the verdict. This is the verdict of the world. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. When Jesus walked on earth, he gave the best teaching on scriptures the world had ever heard. When Jesus walked on earth, he did the greatest miracles that the world had ever seen. But despite the best teaching, despite the greatest miracles, men's hearts were still hardened and the Pharisees and their lords still refused to come to the light. Even the few that accepted his teachings and his deeds, the light was planted so superficially in their lives that it was easily taken back, taken away by the evil. When Jesus was on the cross, think about it, three days before that, people loved him. Those who accepted the truth laid their cloaks down, they honoured him as he came into Jerusalem. The same people in three days chose a murderer over him and chose to crucify him on the cross. All his disciples have left him. When you look at the spiritual landscape, the spiritual scene at the moment of the cross, you feel like crying. It's terrible. There is not a single speck of light left except for Jesus. And the last bastion of light in the world seems to be fading away. The best teachings, the best miracles, and the people still refuse to turn to the light, choosing to go back to the darkness. When you look at this and you think, how are you going to save them? Who can save these people? What can save these people? Nothing seems to be able to touch them. They choose darkness instead of light. You feel like despairing and crying and just giving up. And at that point, Jesus had one more way up his sleeve. He had one more method of reaching the lost, and this way would not fail. He let them kill him. Jesus said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Imagine a great darkness, and in the whole darkness, there's only one sheaf of wheat, and it's shining of light, it's made of light. And as that sheaf of wheat falls to the ground, the grains of light get scattered near and far, and they get planted in the lives of people, and it begins to bear light. One such life was Stephen. He received the light, he himself became light in the darkness, and the people did not understand him, and so they persecuted him. They murdered him the same way they murdered the master. And as Stephen died, he said the same words that Jesus said. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And as he died, without them realizing, his life was planted as the light in their lives. In Acts chapter 8, there is one verse that says, when Stephen died, Saul of Tarsus was there. He witnessed what was happening and he approved of the murder of Stephen. In Acts chapter 9, Saul of Tarsus becomes, meets Jesus on the road to Damascus in the most miraculous way. He hears the words of Jesus and then he becomes Paul the Apostle, one of the most fruitful lives in the history of the church. Who was Saul of Tarsus? Saul of Tarsus described himself as the Pharisee of Pharisees. Generation, 400 years of false teachings, all in his family, Pharisees of Pharisees. Not only did they receive the teaching, they were delivering the teaching. He was so full of darkness, he was literally murdering Jewish brothers, attacking them and thinking he was right with God. It wasn't Stephen who converted Saul, it was Jesus on the road to Damascus. 
but Jesus did it with a miracle and with his words. Now, Saul of Tarsus had seen miracles. He had heard the words of righteous men. It says that Stephen was doing signs, wonders, and miracles, but he could not believe it. Stephen was teaching good message, but he could not receive it. There's a reason why Jesus could not reach Saul of Tarsus in Acts chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. Only in Acts chapter 8, there is a single verse that says he was there and he witnessed what was happening. And in Acts chapter 9, he meets Jesus and he's finally able to accept the miracle encounter with Jesus, able to accept the words of Jesus and he gets saved. There's no accident in the Bible that one sentence is significant or God would have taken it out. God put it there because it's significant. Do you see? Sometimes when we think we know the truth and we are trying to share it with the world, if people don't believe your words, if people don't believe the deeds that God is doing through you, you can't go out and argue against them, speak bad about them, attack them. The only way you can do is you let them persecute you if they are going to do it and you love them and you sow your life as a seed in them. That's God's way. Imagine a wife who's married to a mean husband. The man is mean to her because his father was mean and his father's father was mean. That's all he has ever known. Generations of meanness. And he's mean towards this godly wife. And this godly wife puts up with it and she loves him. Unconditionally, she loves him. And every day she prays for him. Every day he's persecuting her. She's hurting on the inside. She's crying. Sometimes it feels like part of her is dying. But yet she loves him and loves him and prays for him. One day, that man sees the light and he repents because his wife has sowed godly seeds into his life. From that day onwards, the generations of meanness and evilness is broken in his life. Not just his life, but their two sons who witness what happens. Now their two sons won't inherit meanness for the rest of the generations. It's been broken. Now they will inherit godliness and learning how to be kind and respectful to your wife. And that's what they pass on to their children and their children's children. On the cross, it felt like there was no fruits of righteousness. Everyone had abandoned Jesus. But in the generations, we see that now heaven is populated because of what Jesus did. The fruits of righteousness is seen in the generations. The way to sow righteousness is in love, not by arguing, not by bad-mouthing, not by attacking your brothers, but by sowing in love. Love isn't the quickest way to change someone. It's certainly not the most comfortable way, but it's God's way and it's the best way. When words fail, when deeds fail, love never fails. The Bible says it, love never fails. Never have a single bit of maliciousness towards others. We are God's children. Love men. Don't speak bad about them. In closing, I want to bring you to two verses in Acts chapter 5. Verse 21 and 23. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Away with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your harp. Assembly of God's people, lots of song, lots of singing, music instrument. Doesn't this paint the picture of a church service? What kind of church service 
does God enjoy? What kind of church service would God come in the building and jump up and down with us as we celebrate with Him? It's clear from here, it's not about the singing, it's not about the amount of music instruments we have. I, went, I, I met the lady who came from a reputable church here in Perth. I knew her a few years before, and a few years before, even though she was young in the faith, she was on fire for God. She was contagious in how much she loved God. And then I met her a few years later, and she was uh, disappointed, tired. She was still attending church, still going to a small group in the church, but she had turned to tarot cards for help or count. And she said, I got people around me, my leader and this person and that person, all their lives are in a mess. Marriages breaking down, children going wayward, struggling financially. She says, I feel bad telling them my problem because everyone's got problem. She says, they're all good people, they're all praying, but nothing's happening and I need help. She said, I just need help. It's come to the point, I don't care where my help comes from. And she's turned to the occult for help. When I heard this, my heart broke. How, how did the, a church come to the place where the name of God is so powerless, people have to turn to the occult for help? Is God not able to help His people? In the same church, I know a young lady who left because her heart was broken. Allegedly, there was a young man who broke her heart, who was sleeping around with other young women in the place. Occult, the name of God not working. Sexual immorality among the young people. Do you think that's a place that God's jumping up and down in joy? I went to visit another church. I went there because the presence of God was there. I told my wife, you gotta come and check this place out. She went, she met the lady there and she asked the lady, why are you here? And the lady said, oh, I'm here because the presence of God is here. That place is known for the presence of God. The pastor in the second song of doing the worship, he just interrupts you and said, we're gonna start praying for people now. Four people were appointed to pray for others. They were all young people in their 20s. I saw one lady just behind me. She was praying for another lady and the person she's prayed for started to fall down and manifest, demonic manifestation. That young lady just calmly went up, cast that thing out and in five seconds, the evil thing left the person. I was impressed that the young people had such spiritual authority in that place. And then casually doing between worship and the sermon, the pastor's giving some announcements and he gives a praise announcement of a person who came out for a prayer last week. They had a broken arm, but they were due to go off for a holiday. They were prayed for, went back to the doctor, did an x-ray and the arm was perfectly fine, cast taken off and now they're enjoying their holiday. A place where people come in with problems, with broken lives, but the name of Jesus works. And then they get healed. And then they become victorious. And they are jumping up and down on Sunday, really genuinely cheerful, rejoicing because God has done something fresh and wonderful in their lives. Praises on the mouth of people, victorious living. Don't you feel this is a place that God likes? I'm not beating down the first church. I'm just trying to show you the heart of God. The church is a place where people are supposed to be able to come with broken hearts, broken lives, but the name of Jesus should work in that place so that they don't stay brokenhearted with broken lives. At some point in time, what was broken should be restored. We talk about preaching the good news. What is good news? We think the good news is 
the message of the resurrection. And yes, the resurrection is part of the good news, but it's not the whole good news. The good news is a person called Jesus. Now, if a man is starving, his children is starving, his wife is starving before his eyes, what is good news for that man? Good news is a piece of bread in the land of the living. When a man is sick and he can't sleep at night, he's moaning and he's turning, he's in such pain, he can't sleep at night. What is good news? Good news is that there is healing in the name of Jesus. When there's a couple, a family, the marriage is falling apart, there's so much hurts, nobody can forgive, everyone's so hurt, the only way to make a statement is to leave the marriage. What is, what is good news? Good news for the children, good news for the couple is that there is restoration, there is forgiveness. There is a kind of love that can come back to the point that it's as if the previous offences never existed. Who can do that? Only God can do that. That's good news. To the man who's got the weight of sin on his soul, who knows that he's doomed to go to hell, good news is the message of salvation and eternal life with God through the name of Jesus. That's good news. Good news is the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus is not so powerless that God's only got one solution for every problem, which is the resurrection. The name of Jesus is so powerful that God has every solution for every problem on this earth in the name of Jesus. God loves you, church. He loves you. He's always loved you. He's always cared for you. And He's still the only one who is able to save you. This is the altar call this morning. If you are here and you need God's help for anything in your life, your marriage, your work, your finances, your health, your mental health, you're under some kind of power of sin and you can't break free from it. If you need God's help for anything at all, this morning as we worship, I want to invite you to come to the front and we want to pray with you. We're still a church that is right with God. We've got the righteousness, we've got the faith, and we're gonna pray with you and speak the name of Jesus so that this whole world will see God is still awesome in this place. Amen. Jesus, Lord. We speak the name of Jesus into their life. You say what we sow, we will reap. So into their lives, Lord, we speak the name of Jesus like a seed. Whatever their need is, Lord, we pray the name of Jesus and we have the consciousness, God, that the name of Jesus will do something. Where we are unable to do anything, Jesus will do something. Jesus has always been able to do something and Jesus will do something so that they will see God and praise you that they have seen the goodness of God here in the land of the living. 
Church, open your hands to receive the benediction. I'm going to bless you and let you go. The kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking, but it's a matter of righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. As you leave this place, I pray that the kingdom of God will manifest in your life through the name of Jesus, that wherever you go, whatever you walk into, you will have righteousness, peace and joy because Jesus, the Prince of Peace, is with you. I bless you and bless that you will be a light in the world, that the world will see the goodness of God shining upon you. And I pray this in Jesus' name, Amen.